then there's part of me that wishes you would have shared that testimony prior to me asking you to serve as an elder. <laughs> it's too late now, isn't it, brother? You know, I appreciate your dear brother to so many here, and we're so thankful for you. In particular, thankful for what God's doing in your life um, to bring you to this point. We're also thankful for the Word of God, to which we now have the great privilege to open. Uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. I'm happy to say you can find that on page 984 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, if you would like to use that Bible, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, those Pew Bibles are there for your taking. We'd love for you to be able to take that home and use that and search out God's counsel in it. Well, just a couple verses this morning, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, beginning in verse 18, hear now the word of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Father, we pray for the marriages in this church. Pray for the future marriages in this church. We pray that even now as we consider this passage, you would pour out your spirit upon us. That you would help us to remember, even as husbands and wives sit here, that you would help us to remember that you keep your covenant with us. And that you have done so even at unimaginable cost to yourself. We pray that because of your word, which we might think on today, our marriages would grow in strength and humility, that our marriages would be reservoirs of grace and forgiveness, and that even you would help us dream about what our marriages can be in Christ even as you protect us from the lies in our world about marriage. We pray that um, just these two verses here would, would indeed dwell in us richly, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was in 1937, Ben. <laughs> May 18th, saw the birthday of one Bethan Lloyd-Jones, the wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers and theological minds of the 20th century. However, Martin was not able to be with his bride Bethan on her birthday, for he had left Wales where he preached and was on a preaching tour in America. And so he wrote his wife a letter that would be sent to her by telegram. He would write, the authorities told me that there was no doubt that if I sent you a telegram, it would arrive on your birthday. I had endless pleasure and happiness in sending it. I somehow felt I was in touch with you once more. In this awful distance of separation, a thing like that is a great help, but oh, what a poor substitute. I cannot describe the various feelings I have experienced since I last saw you on Waterloo Station, and I had better not try to do so. Let me say just this much. Thinking of you gives me endless happiness. And I am more certain than ever that there is no one in the world like you, nor even approaching you, not in all the world. I don't know if I'm losing my reason, like that poor Mrs. J in St. Burns, but I often feel that you are with me. 
and that I could almost talk to you. I have at times tried to imagine where you all three are. You had two daughters. And what you're doing. I would give the whole world if you could have been with me. Been beat, but there, I must be content to look forward to some four weeks today when I shall, God willing, be back with you again, looking into your eyes and sitting beside you. I think I shall be perfectly content just to be with you and Elizabeth and Anne, just sitting with the three of us and doing nothing else. I've been thinking of 11 years ago tonight when we were together, we went together to Covent Gardens and then back to Dilsa's. I thought at that time that I loved you, but I had to live for over 10 years to know you properly so that I could love you truly. I know that time, at times I may be deficient in these things, I am deficient in many things and must at times disappoint you. That really grieves me and I'm trying to improve, but believe me, if you could see my heart, you would be amazed at how great is my love. I hope you know, indeed I know that you know, in spite of all my failings, for I can do nothing but say that from a human standpoint, I belong entirely to you. That's about one-fifth of his letter. Husbands, you can find these in volume two of the biographies of Martin Lloyd-Jones. We find ourselves here in Colossians chapter three, as you know, which we have seen, is really a summary of the Christian ethic, the Christian morality. It is how it is that we live out our faith, that faith in Jesus is indeed lived out in the hope. The gospel comes to us, it reorders our lives, it transforms our relationships. And so I say now, I think for the eighth time in Colossians 3, that the true Christian faith is simply not what you believe about Jesus. It is how you treat your employees. It's how you parent your children. It is how you love your spouse. That if Christianity does not work at home, our Christianity does not work at all. And so we here come here to what historians have called the household codes. We find these in Scripture. We find these outside of Scripture and other ancient non-Christian writings that give out the... the um, the duties of certain members of the households. And Paul will list three different uh, couplings, uh, husbands and wives, fathers and children, and then slaves and masters. We, as you know, we considered last time, we, we considered fathers and children. We skipped over, didn't we, uh, husbands and wives. We did that just uh, because of Father's Day. But I do find it interesting, both this passage and the parallel one in Ephesians 5, Paul begins with husbands and wives in both places. And I, I, I think, if I could just finish my Father's Day sermon from last week, that the greatest need that our kids have is not so much for you to be a good dad, but it's actually for you to be a good husband to their mother. And the greatest needs that your children have, moms, is not simply that they would have a good mom, but they, they, there will be a good wife in the home to their father. And so today we turn and consider marriage this morning. Marriage is hard. Or so I've heard. I, in fact, I expect you to amen that. Um, when I when I try it again, Mar marriage is hard, right? Um, perhaps you heard of the seven-year-old girl who just watched Cinderella and was testing her neighbor's knowledge of the story, and her neighbor, wanting to impress the little girl, says, "I know how it ends." Uh, little girl says, "Well, how how does it end?" And and the neighbor says, "Well, Cinderella and the prince live happily ever after." To which the girl answered, "Oh no, they didn't. They got married." Okay? 
Sadly, uh, to be honest, that's the experience of many, isn't it? We laugh, but some of you are raised in homes with a, what we might call a toxic marriage, a dysfunctional marriage, maybe, sadly, an abusive marriage. Others, with no insight into anybody's particular situation, might be living in the midst of one. It is Martin Luther who said, there is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship than a good marriage. And I think the majority of us know that to be true, but I think the opposite is also true. There is no more harmful, adversarial, and destructive relationship than a poor marriage. If you walk into this room with one of those, I do hope you're not resigned to it. I do hope you do not feel this morning that there is no future in your marriage, that it will never be what it's supposed to be. There's no reconciliation. There's no restoration. There's no forgiveness. It's never going to happen. It's impossible. And virgins don't have babies, by the way. Red seas are not parted, by the way. Bread does not float down from heaven, by the way. Except it does, doesn't it, in Christ. And if you in your heart say, I can never love her again, or I can never love him again, I tell you, that is simply unbelief in the power of God that's who says, nothing is too hard for me. So may God, even now, today, begin to do the impossible as you listen to his word, not so much as to what she must do or what he must do, but what must I do to honor my God in my marriage. I think perhaps part of the trouble with marriage today is our our culture. I read a recent article on why people get married from a, a, a secular publication. They identified three reasons people get married. They said, what, number one, self-discovery. Number two, self-esteem. Number three, personal growth. Now, uh, um, if you put all those together, you see there's a common theme there, don't you? The, the cultural understanding of marriage is that my needs are central. It's about me. It's about my discovery, my esteem, my growth. So what happens when the relationship gets hard, it becomes difficult, well then we tend to abandon that because I'm not getting out of it what I came into it seeking. So Christian marriage, of course, you know, I even hear some of you chuckle when I go over those things, it is to be different, isn't it? You're not looking in your marriage for self-discovery. You're not looking for self-esteem. You're looking to honor Christ. You're looking to do what God has called you to do. And in doing so, you'll receive the fullness in which God wants for you. You see, your marriage has a unique ability, as we'll discover, to glorify God. Your marriage has a unique ability to glorify God. Now, that may be hard to imagine in the midst of the mundane, day-to-day -day marriage with all the meals and all the chores and all the responsibilities. And you think, wait a second, marriage is supposed to be glorious? And I say to you, yes. Undoubtedly. And so my brothers and sisters in Christ, please do not settle for simply just a marriage that survives when the Bible is commanding and commending something glorious. And so we'll consider both the duties, the obligations of wives and husbands. Before we do, just a couple notes. One, I, when I, I'm talking today not about men and women, I'm talking about husbands and wives. So be careful from drawing these implications out to just gender in general. You might find it interesting to know, by the way, that the elders have been discussing the roles of gender within our local congregation as we seek um, just clarity on making sure any roles that we restrict based upon gender is biblical and not traditional. And we're going to be able to talk to you more about that in our coming members meeting in August. 
The second note that I, that I would encourage you if you're not married here today, which of course is many of you, uh, I do remind you that Paul tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. And so when you hear wives submit to your husbands, I hope you hear something of, of the church submit to Christ. And when you hear husbands love your wives, I hope you hear something of Christ's love for you. That you would once again listen with two ears, one for your marriage and one in your relationship with the Lord. As we begin uh, with the wives, point number one of two this morning, wives submit to your husbands. Uh, to be honest, I prefer to deal with husbands first, but I'm just going to follow the order of the text, as you see. So ladies first this morning, as we consider the what, the how, and the why of a wife's submission. Wives, submit to your husband. Of course, I'm just quoting the scripture there, aren't I? Not being creative. Once again, verse 18, wives, submit to your husband. So there it is in black and white, isn't it? That wonderful and delightful verse that we all love, right? Wives are to submit to their husband. I think it would be really neat if we had like a worship song with that as the chorus. Don't you think, right? No amen? Of course not. This is one of the most hated verses in the Bible, especially in our culture. It is, at the very best, according to our culture, dated, if not demeaning, disgusting, and some would, of course, claim dangerous. They think such realities lead to a tyranny of men over women, and our culture seeks to free women from the biblical commands, seeks to provide for them liberation from these antiquated ideas. We've been doing so for decades now. I simply would like to ask the culture, how is that going? Right, because all our marriages are better now, aren't they? The state of, of marriage, everyone's happier. All this liberation of orthodox biblical Christianity, let's get rid of that. And of course, that's led to us to the promised land. Marriages are doing great. Our kids are better. No, I'm afraid not. I would suggest to you that the Bible would teach us that authority and indeed submission to that authority is not the enemy of love. It is not the enemy of fulfillment. It is, as our culture says, it is the actual context in which that love and fulfillment flourishes. Of course, others would just conclude Paul is a chauvinist. In fact, many even who would preach uh, in our pulpits in this land would, would say, well, this is just something we have to ignore. This is Paul's kind of hang up here. He's a misogynist. Well, if we say that Paul, Paul got this wrong, if he gets verse 18 wrong, what else? I just have to ask, what else did Paul get wrong, by the way? And, and, and what, why do we stop at Paul? What about Peter? What did he get wrong? And what did Luke and John and Matthew get wrong? And before you know it, we are undermining the entire uh, uh, scripture in which we have received. If we revise the Bible, as so many of our churches are doing, in order to accommodate our cultural preference, what are, we will do that with all of scripture. I don't care where you start, I know where you'll end, and it is getting rid of the Bible. In fact, I would argue that Paul is, is doing the exact opposite of being a, a, a of misogyny. There has, uh, and this might be a bold statement, but I believe it to be true, there has never been a more elevating influence on the status of women other than Christianity. Christian, let me say that in another way. Christianity has been the most elevating influence on the status of women in the history of this world. And I, I think it is no coincidence by cultures and countries that have been historically influenced by Christianity, it seems women are doing far better than those that have not been. If you don't believe that to be true, travel to a Muslim nation, or travel to a Hindu nation, or travel to a Buddhist nation, or travel to a nation in which is primarily influenced by pagan beliefs, and you'll see women far, far their status 
far lower than what we have in this land. I would say Christianity grants dignity and security and honor to women, and I think history bears that to be true. So let's just assume this passage is right, that wives are to submit to their husbands. Let's begin by asking, what does that mean? So that's what the what of submission. I think it's probably helpful to begin with the what it doesn't mean. What's a what, what not, if I could put it that way. Submission does not mean that uh, wives are to surrender to some type of a husband tyranny, husbandly tyranny. I think some men have tyrannized their, tyrannized their, their wives with these words. You've heard stories, perhaps, of wives unable to visit a friend or withdraw money from a bank or something like that out of a, of a, a fear of their husbands. That's not what Paul is arguing. A husband's authority over his wife is to reflect Christ's authority over the church. It's to be gentle. It's to be kind. It's to be sacrificial and compassionate. Secondly, it doesn't mean that wives, you stop thinking or sharing your ideas. Wives still have opinions. Wives can still lovingly disagree with their husband. You can still seek to persuade your husband, since 1 Peter 3 tells us that you ought to. I think Caroline Mahaney is right in her book, Feminine Appeal, when she writes, wives are to be helpmates, not helpless mates. Third, it does not mean obedience. You might find this interesting. Even though Paul gets blamed for it, he does not tell wives to obey their husbands. He tells children to obey their fathers, verse 20. He even tells slaves to obey their masters, which is interesting, verse 22. But he does not tell wives to obey their husbands. He tells wives to, as you read it right there, submit. Or maybe your translation says, be subject to. He'll do the exact same thing in Ephesians 5. And I believe obedience is more fitting for those who are given orders. And therefore expected to carry out those orders. And that is not the relationship between a husband and a wife. And fourth, I would say submission does not mean that you are in any way inferior to your husbands. Submission has nothing to do with worth or value. Men are not superior to women. Okay, let's hear some men on that one, right? Okay. Okay. Listen, tr ladies, trust me. Of all the people aware of the deficiencies of men, it's men, okay? We know we are not superior to women. And so this submission has nothing to do with value or worth. Activity and role do not equal value. You submit to a police officer, don't you? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I'm so sorry, sir. That doesn't mean that, that, that you, you are unequal to him. He has an authority over you. You have different roles. But your value is not based upon your role. It's not based upon who, what, what you do, but it's rather based upon who you are. And you are, both man and woman, as John show, shared with us this morning from Genesis 1. You are made in the image of God and therefore endowed with value, dignity, and worth primarily because of who you are. Not because of the roles in which you do. So if that's what submission is not, what is it? Well, the word submit simply means to place yourself under the authority of another. It means to yield. It means to have deference. We read in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11 that the husband is the head of the wife. And so the wives submit to their husbands because their husbands have an authority. So you honor, when you honor your husband as God's appointed head over you, you do so by submitting to him, by submitting to his, his authority in that relationship. Now, please, please understand, submission, when we talk about yielding, that, that, that often takes place when you actually disagree on something. Submission is not agreeing, often is not agreeing. I use this illustration often. Um, if I tell my kids after church, Hey, let's go. Let's all go out and get ice cream. They will. They have. They will not respond to me. We submit. 
Okay? We're going to submit to your authority on that one. No, they say, we agree. That's a great idea. Ice cream sounds good. Submission often is seen when there is a disagreement, and yet you yield at that time. Not always, but quite often. And this is what God calls for wives to do. Now, ladies, if you don't want to submit to your husband, then don't get married. Okay? Because this is the biblical command for you. And I do think for all the young ladies here, the young single ladies here, as you consider one day, should I marry this man or should I marry that man? Um, I, I think you want to think in these terms. I'm going to re be required by God to submit to him. I want that submission to be joyful. I want that submission to be life-giving. You should watch, therefore, how he treats his mother. You should watch how he interacts with his sisters because how he treats the women in his life is probably is how he's going to treat you. And you should be aware that one day he's going to be an authority if I marry him. And I should be careful and, and evaluate that reality. So that, if that's the what of submission, how is it that you go about doing it? Well, I think you see from this text that this submission is a voluntary submission. A voluntary submission. It is stunning. It would have been stunning to the Colossians, not to us, that Paul actually addresses wives. Right? He's specifically talking to them now. Wives, uh, submit to your husband. That does not happen in any ancient household code outside of Scripture. Right, the ancient world often talks about submission in the context of marriage, but it always says, men, husbands, make sure your wife submits. It talks to men, not women, and tells them to enforce the submission upon their wives. Paul instead, uh, uh, um, uh, out of bounds with every other ancient literature, appeals to wives in particular, treating them as moral and accountable and responsible people, and they are to embrace the submission in which God calls for them. This is a voluntary act on them. We also see this in the, uh, the voice of the verb submit. So hang tight, 45 seconds of grammar here, and we'll move on. This, the, the word submit is in the middle voice. Now, we don't have a middle voice in English. We have an active voice and a passive voice, and Greeks do as well. So a, a, a passive voice, will be, a passive verb would be something done to you. So you might say that you were baptized, okay? So the baptism was done to you, that would be in the passive. That's, uh, we have an active. An active is something you do. So we might say, she baptized you. And so then the, the baptism was something that she actively did. The, the Greeks have a third voice called the middle voice, which combines the two. And it's the middle voice is something you do to yourself. So something you do, active, but it's done to yourself, so it's passive. So it's right in the middle. It's the middle voice. And so Paul, using the middle voice here, is saying, wives, Submit yourselves. This is something that you do to yourself. In other words, it is not the husband's duty to make sure the wife submits. You will find nowhere in scripture, not a single time, husbands make sure your wife submits. We should encourage their submission by loving them well, but you are not to seek to enforce it. You are to do what God has told you to do. It is a voluntary submission. Secondly, it is an exclusive submission. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Um, maybe your translation says, submit to your own husbands. So my wife submits to me, but not to you. Right? Nowhere in the Bible, once again, does it say women submit to men. You will not find that in Scripture. So man can't talk up to a woman and expect some type of deference or some type of yielding or some type of submission. This is simply in the relationship between a husband and wife. Even I would suggest, and I have before in counseling, if you are dating some man, if you're a, a woman dating a man, you are not expected to submit to him. That is not 
but what the Bible calls for you to do. He should not expect that until he has made the vows to love and protect you. And so it is exclusive submission. Thirdly, it's a difficult submission, isn't it? This is going to be hard. Submission is hard in a fallen world. In particular, it's going to be hard for wives to submit to their husbands. We know that to be true from Genesis chapter 3. If you read about the curse in which God pronounces upon this world, part of the curse in which God addressing Eve says, Eve and the daughters of Eve, you're going to desire to rule your husband. You're going to have a desire to reign over your husband, to dominate your husband. That is part of the curse. So Janet Chin, a wife of a pastor, says, sometimes instead of respecting our husbands, wives can belittle, demean, and demand. Sometimes it's easy for us to have a critical, complaining, or controlling spirit. And this is the reality in which wives need to fight against. Perhaps you heard of the fictitious story of a group of men in heaven, and they're all out of sorts, and, and Peter is trying to get them organized. And he says, now, now I need you guys in two groups. He says, on my left, I need to have all the men whose wives dominated them in their earthly pilgrimage, whose wives ruled the home. And then he says, on my right, I like to have all the men who exercise leadership in their earthly pilgrimage. And so there was this massive shift over to the left-hand side. Like just droves and droves of men going over to the left. And finally, they assembled themselves. And Peter looked over to his right. And there was just one man standing there. And he said to them, you're, you look quite lonely over there. How did you come to stand there? In which he responded, my wife told me to stand over here. Okay. Right? Right? What? Yeah, boo. See, I'm not laughing, by the way, okay? Um, it's going to be a difficult submission. Thirdly, it's gonna, it needs to be a respectful submission. Or fourthly, let me say that. A respectful submission. We're reminded in the book of Ephesians, after Paul lays out the duties of husbands and wives, it gets to the very end, he says, wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Wives respect, husbands love. You do realize you need both food and water to live. But water is more important. You go longer without food than you can with water. And so for wives, love is kind of like the water and respect is kind of food. She needs both, but she really needs the love. For men, it's the opposite. For men, their, their water's respect. Their food is love. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that men live off the respect of their husband. I have read that men have affairs, not with women they find attractive but with women that respect them. They find built up in that. And so wives, let me encourage you to herald and cherish the accomplishments of your husbands, that you would not let anybody praise your husband more than you, that you would respect him. Of course, the opposite of respecting is, is what we might call nagging. The, the Proverbs warn repeatedly of a nagging wife. You could read that. Constantly warning of that. Men, I'll just tell you, as a man, men don't like nagging. You ever see two men nag each other? Right? No, because one of them would have to die, right? Okay. Okay. It frustrates men. It, it robs men of their dignity. It robs them of their masculinity. I'm telling you, so many men live off the confidence instilled in them by their wives. And if you, if, listen, 
if you respect him, he will believe you despite the evidence to the contrary. Right? I mean, listen, you give us like a jar of pickles and we open it, we feel like a Greek god for the next three hours, right? <laughs> and we are walking around with our chest puffed right? We are, in other words, we are very simple creatures, okay? Yeah. So respect just goes so far for us. And of course, men, you need to make it easier by giving them something to work with. But wives, perhaps you might ask your husband. What makes you feel respected? The answer might surprise you. Well, it's how this submission perhaps bears itself out. Perhaps lastly, we might ask why. Well, we're told there in verse 18, aren't we? Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. You're not submitting because he's better or wiser. You don't submit to your husband because he is worthy. You do so because Christ is worthy. And if you want to honor Christ, you will submit to your husband. Let's be clear, however, that it would be unfitting in the Lord if your husband ever asked you to do something against the Lord's commands. You're not at that point to submit to him. His authority is not absolute in your life. You don't follow him or anybody else into sin. I think it might be helpful as even as we wrap up wives and move on to husbands, that remember when Paul, um, again in Ephesians, gets to the end of, of his uh, exhortation of husbands and wives, and he says, well, you know, husbands do this and this, and wives do that and that, and just verse after verse after verse, he gets to the end, he says, oh, by the way, I'm you know what I'm really talking about? I'm talking about Christ and the church. In other words, our marriage is to be a metaphor of how Christ relates to his bride and how, the, how the, his bride, the church, relates to him. And so the, if that's true, then joyful and willing submission of the church to Jesus is to be seen in your joyful and willing submission to your husband. As one put it, when a wife expresses a submissive heart for her husband, she is depicting how a believer responds to the Lord Jesus. When she doesn't, she is marring the gospel. And I say this simply because I want you to realize far more is at stake than getting your fair share or your desires being met or whatever it might be. The gospel's at stake, right? The gospel's at stake in our marriages. And we wonder why the enemy is constantly attacking husbands and wives. And so we gladly, I hope, receive God's instructions. Perhaps you might think about one thing you can do this week to better and more joyfully submit to your husbands. As we move on to husbands, we see second, point number two, husbands love your wives. Verse 19, simply quoting scripture once again, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I'll tell you, this once again is shocking in the culture. I've read these ancient codes. There's not one place outside of scripture where husbands are told to love their wives. In fact, it was not expected in this day. What you read quite often, husbands rule your homes, rule your wives, but you never read husbands love your wives outside of scripture. And so I, I, I think even in reading it and becoming aware of it, we recognize that these two commands, both the husband and wife, need to be held together. That in order for them to work well, uh, in order for submission to work well, there needs to be love. And in order for love to work well, there needs to be submission. They go together. And so when your wife submits, she's not simply bowing to an authority, but she's yielding to one who loves her above all things, who is secure in his love. Therefore, wise and godly husbands will do their best to make their wife's submission a delight and, and joy because of the great love in which they have for her. I, I meant husbands. I don't know if you realize this, uh, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, ladies. Women like to be loved. I mean, it's kind of their thing. Right? Yeah. So husbands, love them. You notice, by the way, this is a command. God's 
always commanding us to love, isn't he? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Even love your enemies, we're told. Now, of course, here we're told that we are to love our wives. The implication, of course, is that love is simply not a victim of your emotion, like you fall into it, like the pit you walked into. No, it, it is far more a servant of your will. You are to love your wife and to not love your wife, as some men say, well, I just don't love her anymore. Well, I'll tell you, that's a sin. The solution to the sin of not loving your wife is not an additional sin called divorce. The solution to the sin of not loving your wife is to repent and start loving your wife. Actually, do what God tells you to do. He says rather clearly. I mean, there's no ambiguity here, isn't it? Husbands, love your wives. And so, of course, we know that love includes emotions, but it has to be more than emotions. Love acts. Love, love um, does things. For God so loved the world, he gave us his only son. So you can't just go home, men, and say, well, baby, I love you. You actually do it. You actually express it. And you do so by putting her interests above your own and sacrificing for her good and caring for her and giving yourself to her. You might try to find out this week what makes your wife feel loved and then make some plans accordingly. Because even remember that in loving your bride, you want your love to resemble Christ's love for you. I mean, how does Christ love his bride? How does Christ love you? He does so, of course, not by lording it over her, by dying for her. It's a giving love. It's a sacrificial love. It's an impactful love. Which is why a domineering husband or an absent husband or a selfish husband is contrary to the very purpose of marriage. The gospel is the story that Jesus rescues us from, from slavery and brings us into the family. Not that he might rule over us simply as a slave master, but that he might love us as a bridegroom. We are to love like Christ has shown us. If you're here this morning and you're a single man, you say, well, I don't have a wife. But you can. No, you don't have a wife now, young men. You can start loving her now. Right? Love her now, meet her later. Right? So how do I do that? Well, by growing up in responsibility. Right? By becoming a man. By taking ownership of your own affairs, by growing in your faith, by being a faithful steward of, the, of the, that little job that you have, right? By shunning immorality and pornography and things like that. And so when you meet her, you're ready for her. You've been loving her before you meet her. And when you meet her, you say, you know, I, I, I've been loving you. It's really nice to meet you. Now, don't say that at the first date because that will freak her out, okay? <laughs> but, you know, you're... you're you're six months into this relationship, you're nine months into this, and you come out and say, you know, baby, uh, I've actually been loving you for years. Say, really? How, how's that? I've been praying for you. Uh, I, you know, I don't have much, but I, I, got, I got a little savings account to help with a down payment on our home, and, and I, I want I to start providing for you before I, I ever met you. I've been pure. I, I, I've been pure with my eyes and my body, so I want to save myself for you, I didn't even know you, but I, I, I've been loving you. And guys, she, you should be taking notes, guys. She will be digging that. That will be, love her before you meet her. So Paul gives the positive command to husbands, but it's not all he says to them. As you note, he also has a negative command, which I find perhaps the most surprising thing in this passage. And he says there in verse 19, as you see it, and do not be harsh with them. 
Don't be harsh. Be gentle, tender, self-control. I find it surprising because <laughs> I wonder if I took like 100 guys aside and said, okay, guys, what two, let's say we didn't know this verse. I said, let's give two, two duties, two commands that husbands are to do with their wives. I'll give you the first one. Husbands, love your wives and, and then I ask you to fill in the and. Um, I imagine maybe 10 of 100, probably even less, would say, oh, and do not be harsh to them. Right? I, I think we come up with all sorts of different ideas, but very few of us would say, oh, yeah, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. In, in other words, of all the tag-ons that Paul could have added here, of all the things he could have said for husbands to do towards their wives, why does he say don't be harsh, don't be severe, don't be cruel? Because it's not because we have a tendency to do just that. Of course, you put two sinners together and they're going to be sparks, aren't they? When those sparks fly, it is, of course, reality that men can be terrifying in their anger. And not that I wanted to return to this idea. I talked about it last week in the context of fathers, but I just see it in the text before me, and I want to be faithful to the text. And so let me just say once again that any type of abuse, any type of verbal or physical abuse, is the exact opposite of the Christ-like love in which we are to demonstrate and has no place in within, within the church, no place amongst the people of God. And if there's any man here thinking, okay, well, what constitutes abuse? I think you're already in sin, brother. You should be wanting to run as far away from that as possible, not even get close to anything that smells of some type of verbal abuse or physical abuse, because the husband's love is to be a covering over his wife. It is to be a shelter to which she flees in times of turmoil. The husband's, a husband is to be a refuge, a, a protector. And when you men throw your little fit like a three-year-old in an adult man's body, and you're yelling and flailing and slamming and screaming like a toddler, you become terrifying to your wife. And you are no longer at that point the protector. You have become the enemy. You are not the shelter from the fears in the world. You are the one to fear. You are the one to be careful around. You're the one not to be at ease with. You become like a sleeping lion. And all she does is tiptoe around you so as to not awaken it. Is your wife afraid of you when you are angry? That should never be the case. And with no insight into people's lives, I wonder if there is not a woman in this room or more silently praying right now for her husband. God, please let my husband hear this. Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. This is the word of God. Are you loving them? Are you leading in love? Men, when's the last time you initiated a conversation about the kids' spiritual well-being? When's the last time, husband, you said, hey, we should pray about that? When's the last time you talked to another husband and said, We're just, just looking for best practices? What are you doing to love your wife, to minister, and to lead your family, and we can learn from each other? We do simple things, I think. Hold hands with our wives in public and kiss her when we get home and tell her how you appreciate her and Give her your attention when you're talking to her. You put down the phone, you turn off the television, and you give her attention. It's never too late to start. 
to do what God has called you to do, to embrace God's fullness for you. You know, I, I started this message t- telling you that marriage is hard. I, I, do, I do imagine uh, that there are troubled marriages even here. M- m- many of, when I say troubled, though, I don't mean miserable. Many marriages aren't miserable. They're just kind of disintegrating slowly. Right? Most marriages don't suffer through like a terrible car accident, though some do. Most are like a leaky tire. They've been leaking for years just through neglect. And maybe it's even undetected until you have to pull over and you can't go any farther. I would say both to husbands and wives, the best thing you could do for your marriage is to believe the gospel. What did we learn in chapter 2 that Paul told us there in verse 13? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We learn in Christ that our sins have been forgiven, that our debt against God has been counseled because hands and feet were nailed into a Roman cross, the very hands and feet of the Son of God who went to his death and received the wrath of a holy God upon himself for the sins of which I have committed, even as a husband, the sins of which you have committed. And then three days later, he rose victoriously from the dead, and now he offers to forgive anyone's sins and to cancel anyone's debt if they would simply yield their life to him and bow their knee to him in faith. For the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what does it say? Your forgiveness of sin. Counseling of debt. What does that mean? That all Christians, all Christian wives and all Christian husbands are forgiven by God. Her sins have been nailed to the cross. His debt has been counseled. And in light of what God has done for you, what then should you do to one another? We saw it in verse 13, did we not? In chapter 3, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So what you do is you take the grace in which you have received, the forgiveness in which God has lavished on you in Christ, and you're, so you become awakened and so delighted in the fact that God you would forgive me. That you would, you would wipe my debt against you clean. You would do that for me. And now you ask me to go and do that to my wife and go and do that to my husband. Yes, of course. I find great delight in being able to take the grace in which I have received and extend it to other people. It is living in the power of the gospel. And I believe if you begin to do that, if you begin to forgive as you have been forgiven, you might just see that a little bit of love rekindled, a little bit of affection reawakened, a little bit of delight return. I've been helped by reading John Piper's writings on marriage. I don't know if you've come across his work on that topic, but he talks, and I'll end with this, of the compost pile. Have you heard this? He says, picture your marriage as a grassy field. You enter it at the beginning full of hope and joy. You look out into the future and you see beautiful flowers and trees and rolling hills and bright sunshine. But before long, you step in a cow pie. Some seasons of marriage, they may seem to be everywhere. Late at night, they are especially prevalent. These are the sins and weaknesses and annoying habits in, your, in you and your spouse. You try to forgive them and endure them with grace. But they have a way of dominating the relationship. 
It may not even be true, but it feels like that's all there is, cow pies. Our flesh can multiply sins so out of proportion that we think there is no grass anywhere, no hills, no flowers, no trees, and it's a lie. He continues saying, I think the gospel's forgiveness leads to the creation of a compost pile. And here you begin to shovel the cow pies and put up a fence, and it's a compost pile. And you both look at each other and simply admit, man, there are a lot of cow pies. Uh, you, you know, this is what Piper says, you and I bring a lot of you-know-what into this relationship. Okay? <laughs> but you say to each other, you know, there's more to this relationship than cow pies. And we are losing sight of that because we keep focusing on these cow pies. We are actually looking for them. Let's throw them all in the compost pile. When we have to, we'll go there and smell it and feel bad and deal with it the best we can. And then we are going to walk away from that pile and set our eyes on the rest of the field. We'll pick some of our favorite paths and hills, he says, that we know are not strewn with cow pies. And we'll be thankful for that part of the field, for it is sweet. And our hands may be dirty, and our backs may ache from all the shoveling, but one thing we know, we will not pitch our tent by the compost pile. We will go there when we must. But this is the gift of grace that we will give each other again and again and again because we have been forgiven. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive your spouse, that you would let the measure of God's grace to you in the cross of Jesus Christ be the measure of your grace towards the one to whom you are married. Not that you resolve to do it, okay, I just got to go do that, but it actually you would so cherish what you have received in Christ that there would be some measure of delight in your hearts to give it to the one you love. Our Father, we are thankful for your word and the challenge that it is for us. There are great joys in marriage. Perhaps the greatest of earthly joys are found there. We think there's a treasure in marriage that you have, have given to us, and yet sometimes there's also great sorrow. So you, even in praying for marriage now, I, I think of what the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. And so we pray that you would forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And, and I pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from evil. We, we pray that your will would be done in our homes as it is done in heaven. And as you work this in us, we pray we would reflect the gospel as wives joyfully submit to their husbands and as husbands sacrificially love their wives. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.